0: I'm Alka Khoury and host South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender, and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle, Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is the award-winning Hindi language writer Gitanjali Shree. Based in New Delhi in India, Gitanjali is the author of five novels and several short stories. I'll be talking to her about her latest novel, Tomb of Sand, winner of the 2022 International Booker Prize. Originally written in Hindi as Red Samadhi, Tomb of Sand was translated into English by Daisy Rockwell this ambitious and colossal novel that redefines the meaning of modernity, boundaries, gender, colonialism, and the India-Pakistan partition. It redefines even the idea of what a novel is. It explores the themes of memory, generational trauma, forced migration, womanhood, borders, both real and perceived, and feminism. Yetanjali joins me from Delhi. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Would you mind reading a short passage from your novel?
1: Well, maybe I'll just read the beginning. Please. A tale tells itself. It can be complete, but also incomplete, the way all tales are. This particular tale has a border and women who come and go as they please. Once you've got women and a border, a story can write itself. Even women on their own are enough women are stories in themselves, full of stirrings and whisperings that float on the wind, that bend with each blade of grass. The setting sun gathers fragments of tales and fashions them into glowing lanterns that hang suspended from clouds. These too will join our story. The story's path unfurls, not knowing where it'll stop, tacking to the right and left, twisting and turning, allowing anything and everything to join in the narration. It will emerge from within a volcano, swelling silently as the past boils forth into the present, bringing steam, embers, and smoke. There are two women in the story. Two women and one death. There are two women, one death. How nicely we'll get on, us and them, once we all sit down together. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I found it striking to read about how Ma feels almost trapped by her family after the death of her husband. It appears that a lot of Ma's motivation to leave was rooted in how she felt wasting away day by day. As you say, she'd grown tired of breathing for them, feeling their feelings, bearing their desires, carrying their animosities. This line really stands out as what many women, mothers in particular, feel deep down. And although Ma subverts convention in who she later befriends, do you think Ma's choices demonstrate the ways that patriarchal cultures trap women into feeling responsible for others?
1: I think what does happen with a lot of women is that life puts them in a lot of social roles, familial and otherwise. And I think as they grow older, they often feel freer. As life and its ways, and the growing up of children, and the going away of lots of other members of the family, frees them of those roles, and that's when they begin to maybe feel their own breath. You know, they have the freedom to feel that. So it's actually about breaking out or having the opportunity to break out from given roles or roles imposed upon them already, which uh, would, I mean, in the case of women, that's what this story is on, uh, layering and unraveling. But uh, it, it would apply to anybody and I suppose it applies to all humanity, you know, that it's, uh, they are forced into certain roles and we all start questioning those roles and would like to break out often when we can, certain other stories emerge. So I think this is what happens with Ma. You know, she is in a position at last when she's nearing 80 to actually break out of many roles which she had played all this while.
0: Ma describes borders as something that surrounds a person's existence. As borders represent a major theme in the book, especially in the context of partition, the book makes a powerful case that borders are something we create and uphold in our minds. An especially powerful remark Ma makes when she says, a border is not created to be removed, it is meant to illuminate both sides. How does one balance what borders represent with what they actually enforce? Borders have a legitimate political purpose that doesn't always align with what they might mean to someone's life. Is it possible for both things to be true at once?
1: So I think borders are really meant for a certain kind of efficiency, sometimes a certain kind of beauty to be illuminated. Take the border of USA and Canada. There's nothing antagonistic about it. It's between friends it works for a certain kind of better organization. So I think the inner impulse or the real impulse of a border really comes from that and should come from that. But in the USA itself, the border in the south is a more troublesome border, you know, and it doesn't work the way the northern border does. Or take the case of Europe, where in recent times they tried this European Union experiment, which some things worked and some things didn't, but uh, the point of the matter is that they wanted borders retained in a certain way, but not retained in other ways. So I don't think border by itself has to be seen as something negative. And I think we always have borders. In order to be uh, to define something, in order to kind of know our space, not necessarily as something to imprison us or prevent us from moving further from that space but a kind of working facility working convenience we often all the time i think every moment of our life we are working within borders or making borders and realizing borders and that's not by itself a problem the problem is when the border is for political reasons or for other reasons supposed to resolve something which it never does and it becomes an open wound which actually Continues the reason why it had been made in the first place. It continues in an unresolved, untidy, messy, inhuman way. It continues those problems.
0: I thought the role reversal between Beatty and Ma was really interesting because Beatty is a successful, independent woman who defines social norms and suddenly she's responsible for taking care of her mother. Mm -hmm. Personally, the heart of the story really seems to reside in this mother daughter relationship. How Mm -hmm. important was it to ground such a vast story about place, belonging and memory in a relationship between mother and daughter. More specifically, in showing how a mother and daughter can learn a lot from each other even later in life.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it is, uh, I suppose, personally also and all around me also, and for a lot of us, I mean, writers pick up anything and everything, you know, to try and sort of understand and explore. And daughters and mothers is something which is close to everybody's experience probably all daughters and all mothers and also those who are not daughters and mothers who are observing them or learning from them and uh, experiencing what they are experiencing with their sensitivity and empathy so I think that's anyway a theme which is close to everybody but I did not set out with a plan to make this book about this thing or that thing or mother, daughter, etc. But it's just something which brick by brick kept building up and layer by layer kept opening up. And this thing about the reversal of roles, I think that was also something which showed itself as I went along because, you know, I think there are one or two things there. One is that when we are rooted in something when it is already well established then we know how to conduct ourselves and when it is something new that we are doing then even with the best of intentions there are lots of things still to be worked out so in daughter's case she's into something which is different from what it has been hitherto so i say it with sympathy for her it's not about any hollow liberalism being exposed out there. I think she's genuine, you know, in her uh, own right and in her search and everything. But it's a new battle or it's a new assertion. And there are all these sort of shady corners and uh, unresolved uh, bits in it, which she has to discover as she goes along. And one of them is that um, it's easier to believe that you are living in a particular way than to actually live it. So when she thinks about people with a difference, such as the third gender, Rosie, she has a different kind of respect and everything for her. And it is genuine. But when she actually has to deal with her moment to moment, then all her discomfort with the new person who she cannot really fathom, she doesn't really know how that body works, how that mind works, how that person operates. She doesn't understand what the friendship between Rosie and the mother is about. And all this baffles her and puts her in a spot where she has to re-question everything she believed in. So I actually sympathize more with the daughter than it might appear. And the mother, in some senses, well ensconced in whatever she was or whatever centuries have made her it has to be taken with a pinch of salt you know obviously nobody is and there's a constant questioning going on and constant uh, breaking out of given norms which is going on even in the case of mother but comparatively she's uh, well rooted and from a position of in that sense greater security greater knowing what you have been and what you are about after that everything is a stronger move out. So I feel there's that difference which allows the mother to take over in a way the daughter is not able to and the daughter is actually the one who seems to be slipping down in the power and assertion game.
0: I'd like to go back a little bit to say that borders represent real characters in the book. In Ma's depression, there's a real border created by her isolation around her family. Then there's a border being challenged by Rosie, who represents how gender binary can be blurred. Finally, the book explores how borders can cause chaos and division. I'm curious to know if one of the goals in writing the book was to challenge the reader to question what borders they interact with. Also, the book examines physical, political, imagined and cultural and self-imposed borders. Do you think that there are certain borders that are the hardest to overcome for people? Do you think that your book is making a case that there's one type of border that's the most difficult for people to grapple with?
1: Well, let me first respond to the word you used, goal. You know, was that um primary goal with the book? So I again repeat what I've, I think I've said earlier that I did not have an agenda when I started to write the book and I rarely have an agenda when I write any of my books. So it's really something which... Um, i allow to slowly sort of show itself to me and uh, take me along and i discover and learn as i go along and falter and blunder and whatever and find my feet and find my tone and carry on so that is how this book also got written but um, obviously without my being necessarily terribly conscious about it i do carry a whole world and all kinds of struggles within me, you know, which are constantly making my, wherever my intuition is and wherever my inside is, where I'm getting inspired and stimulated and disturbed and whatever. I mean, it's constantly simmering in there. And perhaps borders are hugely a subject in there because, you know, uh, all around me and uh, in my own life, I'm dealing with these borders constantly. You can imagine, you know, that one can just go on and on about the kinds of borders there are. I mean, as I'm speaking with you, one of the borders that I can immediately think of and suddenly strikes me is uh, the border of a novel. What a novel is. And I think in literature, there's a often, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm doing this the first time or there are not millions of others who think differently, like me. But certain stereotypes creep into every line of thought. And with the genres, you know, there is this stereotype about what constitutes a novel, what constitutes a story, what constitutes a particular genre. And one, you know, grows up with that learning. And I think as one goes along, there's a questioning which goes on. And somewhere I had this, what is a novel? What is a story? I was often told, not about me only, but also about certain kinds of writers. Who don't have a story, they said. Who don't really have a plot, you know, who don't really have a story. It's some other kind of musings. So first of all, what is a story? What kind of beginning constitutes a beginning for you, a beginning, middle, and end? What is it that you are expecting? So already there was somewhere questioning a ferment inside me about some stereotype of what is expected of a story, of a novel. And I think that questioning began to play itself out. As I wrote along, don't tell me that a story is only when there's some physical action involved and a physical plot out there. Somebody could be doing absolutely nothing and something could have just played out in the person's mind and that would be action too. So I think it was that kind of world simmering inside me which also kept working itself out as I was writing this book that don't tell me what a novel is. Don't tell me what a story is. Don't tell me what I may write or what I may not write. Don't tell me that if I don't complete this, then there's something wrong. Things don't get completed. Everything is not complete. Completion is not what you think completion is. Everything we make a stereotype of. So it became a book, as I went along, about uh, just questioning stereotypes and seeing whether they stand or whether they need to be challenged and whether they constitute a border which has to be crossed and in that process many kinds of borders just kept emerging and many kinds of borders when they showed up were the kinds of borders which needed to be tore through gone across to check what's happening on the other side some were happy borders perhaps rosies. you know it was like seeing the fluidity of borders So again, it didn't come with a plan. I didn't have a plan laid out that there would be a Rosie in the book. But somehow, the dynamic of the way the work was unfolding and the story was unfolding, a character like Rosie absolutely belonged to it. And she wandered in. And she showed so much the fluidity of gender definitions and so on. You know, you couldn't place her in a well a defined and a rigid border of what a male is or a female is or what so it kind of just made things more real ephemeral fluid that became the main stone and main somehow the search and the truth of the novel i think the book is making this case of questioning borders basically saying don't you know take anything for a given and don't sort of just accept any stereotype as the ultimate truth you have to check that out and there is like i said a fluidity to borders borders of language i mean the book became all about not believing in any pure and fixed border for what the hindi language has to be and this is how it has to be conducted it was ongoing and whether some borders are i mean obviously some borders are more difficult to grapple with and uh, break but but you know i don't know if there are some that uh, have to be listed as universally you know that this is the border which we cannot cross i think there would be specific situations specific histories different unique experiences within which certain borders would be more difficult to collapse and in some other specificity, some other border would be more difficult to collapse. So I think it would have to be seen almost uh, case-wise and region-wise and different histories-wise.
0: I'd like to talk about memory and time, which is one of the central thematics of the book that the narrative revolves around. You say, and I quote, what is forgetting, have you any idea? Think about it. The things that happen... Do they happen on purpose or in forgetfulness? The things that happened, were they accomplished by thinkers or by those who cease to think? Forgetting is dying. I'm not dead. I buried everything from my past in the sand. Today I've returned to that sand. So the book really depicts how the definition of home changes over time, especially in the midst of political chaos and division. It makes an interesting claim that forgetting is equivalent to death. But if we instead bury the past, we're not dead, like more in limbo, and we still have something to return to. So if what we are returning to is completely different because of time and how our own memories distort over time, then does a person's return to the sand represent more of a rebirth than anything? Is that what you wanted Mars journey to represent? And if so, why is it important that an older woman is the center of the story and is allowed to have a rebirth or a return later in her life.
1: I have to respond to this in my own rambling way because your uh, vocabulary is not quite mine. So obviously I'm not thinking in terms of, you know, memory and whatever else you said. But uh, I do think that one of the primary things that writers do and... uh, Maybe not just writers, and maybe writers of all kinds and artists of all kinds do, is to assert memory and assert the importance of not forgetting. There may be, this sounds like a rhetorical line, but it's about it's necessary to forgive, but you must never forget. So I think that is something an artist and a writer feel very strongly. And which is why they are always uh, picking on those stories which are uh, either being forgotten or have not been noticed which is why you know certain kinds of sidelined stories are what they keep drawing to the center also uncovering if it's from within their own deepest recesses then it is uncovering those dark and hidden secrets which they may normally not even be fully aware to but that is what they are trying to do in their creative um, endeavors and in their creative uh, expressions you know to bring those things out however uncomfortable they may be because it's important to see them it's important to remember them and it's important not to forget so i think first of all that just happens you know very naturally and spontaneously in literature and it's happening in this book as well about why an older woman. So once again, remember that I didn't decide that it has to be a story about an older woman, but perhaps it just happened quite uh, naturally and it was not a bad thing that happened. It was quite a powerful thing that happened that you have an older woman who has had such a span of experience. And if you're talking of India specifically, then this woman has known India before it was partitioned. She's had that historical experience and that, you know, sort of grounding in that time to whatever is happening much, much later. So the fund of experience was, the range of it was so large that she becomes a really rich character to turn to and learn from. So I think uh, I didn't make the choice consciously, but it was in the end a great choice, that it was an old woman rather than somebody young. Of course, whatever the character might be, you know, will bring different angles to things and will be stirring up all kinds of thoughts and situations and feelings and memories, which um, hopefully will add up to a worthwhile experience anyway. So it doesn't have to be only an older person. But the fact that this became an older person meant that there was this very rich fund of experience and memory that could you know, weave these tales together. And you also used at some point the word bury. I think that's exactly something which records in the book again and again. It's not like burying the dead in the grave, that it's all finished. That's why I use the word samadhi in Hindi, You know, which they could not uh, quite replicate uh, in English, but I think the title... For different reasons, this title works well as well, Tomb of Sand. Uh, As Daisy keeps uh, reminding me, uh, a tomb of sand is ephemeral because it is of sand. So it is not a fixed and finished grave where the dead are buried. So I think she started off by uh, trying to comfort me that they couldn't um, use the word samadhi. But in the end, I also see the point of that. So indeed, you know, if it's made of sand, it's... Not really a tomb. But anyway, in Hindi, I had access to this fantastic word, Samadhi. Samadhi, which is not about dying, but about withdrawing into some other space. And transcending as well, but retiring. But it's not like you have said goodbye and you are gone forever. Samadhi, you are supposed to be in Samadhi for. As long as you want and something or the other will then make you come out of your samadhi. Either your own of your own volition or because you are stirred from the outside and the samadhi then is over and it emerges. So I think it became for me a very evocative motive and it said so much that uh, nothing ever dies. No one and nothing ever dies. At the most, it will go into Samadhi and wait for its moment and it will re-emerge. So no story, you cannot wipe out a story, you cannot wipe out anybody. Even if no one has seen what happened, then the butterflies and the cosmos has seen and it is there in Samadhi and it will find its moment and resurface. And of course, that will be, like you said, it will be different from when it went into Samadhi, that memory and that story, because now it re-emerges in a different time. So it does become, in that sense, a rebirth and a reinvention. So I think all these words, to me, make sense. And all these words, to me, um, just to say the same thing, you know, about nothing ever dies. And uh, I won't call it rebirth or anything, but I would just say nothing ever dies. Um, you can call it what you want, and I'll say, yeah, yeah, why not, yes. But I myself would never have used the word rebirth and various others that you use. But yes, I mean, the point is that everything is alive and will ever be alive. It must never be forgotten. You cannot forget it. It will somehow remind you of itself. Somehow or the other, it will come back in your purview.
0: I felt like the book centers also heavily around dichotomy and perceived differences between man and woman, life and death, India and Pakistan, etc. Importantly, your writing aims to transcend and cross those differences. In many ways, Rosie represents that ability to transcend previous limitations. How important was it that you include gender as a boundary that people have to grapple with and even transcend or subvert, especially at a time of exacerbated conservative ideas around gender? A lot of the book takes on a very radical meaning.
1: Well, I'm glad that the book reveals all these possibilities and all these uh, ways of seeing things. But, you know, my problem, or again, my position is that I did not set out with um, a formula to deal with any of these. But I, but again, you know, I go back to the world I'm carrying with me, you know, and which has grown with me. I mean, it's my, all the experiences that have, um, you know, enriched my life and imagination and the philosophies that have worked around me of the unity of the entire universe, you know, where, uh, uh, in fact, you cannot compartmentalize identities. You cannot uh, make these sharp divisions. And I think, you know, it, it isn't completely a, what we consider a modern idea. And I think this is how the, the earth. And the planet was operating, and um, there are examples of all kinds. Of, this is not an expert talking. I'm talking sort of uh, just picking up something from here, picking up something from there. But even about you know gender. Now look at the way, look at someone like Gandhi, for instance, you know, and the way he combines so-called man and woman in his uh, you know um, body language. I'm mean, look at the way he sits, look at the way he sometimes. His hands are sometimes like this. In modern lingo, we sort of see a gay person with certain gestures. But we won't think of a traditional man in a certain way. But Gandhi was combining those different qualities. And he was actually talking about um, the unity of womanly, so-called womanly and manly qualities. So I think all this somewhere, you know, was the rich world. I believed in and believe in and that is what you know kept uh, enriching the book and giving me all my stories giving me all my characters and giving me these uh, possibilities of not dividing them up so i think it was just happening quite organically they are you know together then then some of them symbolized it much more sort of physically if you will like rosie But everywhere it was, you know, it's not separate. I mean, in fact, in the book, as I went along uh, right from the start, actually, the inanimate also became a part of this animate world, you know, because I think uh, for me, it just felt that a doorway, for instance, which has, you know, seen over the decades and the centuries, seen, you know, certain kinds of people going from under it, going this way and that, and seen these stories enacted or the road, for instance, the Grand Trunk Road, which is coming down the ages. And it has seen all those histories being uh, played out uh, on top of it. Bloody histories, musical histories, loving histories, or, you know, the Silk Route and uh, the Sarais and the Inns alongside where merrymaking would go on. People would rest. There would be camaraderie. Then, of course, all the ugly things that happened the inhuman things that happened the partition stories how can a road like this remain just uh, something inanimate and uh, whatever it's made of you know mortar and cement and things how can it remain just something dead it's impossible just uh, by virtue of having seen all this you know it would become sensitive and feeling and witness to so much so I think it was that feeling of the unity of everything, you know, everything being linked, everything being dependent on each other and everything flowing into each other, which just led me on. And I'm saying it's an organic development there. It's also, you know, I mean, the the other thing, you know, you think of is... Like a rock. I mean, I often feel that about ancient temples and ancient relics and things. You know, it's not, it's not, it can be from any religion or any civilization. But just the thought that this is the rock which ancient woman and man, you know, touched. It brings it alive. It's not just any rock. It's a rock which contains so much. It contains a touch. And by touching it, I am connecting to that touch. And I think it was that feeling that I was savouring as I wrote this book.
0: Yeah, indeed. I thought that there was immense value in treating animals and objects with as much weight as human characters that you do. That's absolutely fantastic. When speaking about family in general, you say that, and I quote, they contain all that exists in the world and whatever they don't contain doesn't exist. This whole book feels like a story that revolves heavily around history and generational trauma, told through an intimate portrait of a family and what family means to people. It's certainly true that families contain an abundance of history and storytelling, a lot of which can get lost when parents don't tell their children about their lives and their childhoods, especially for women who are often the designated storytellers in a family. Is there an added layer of significance for the story to revolve around a mother and a daughter and conveying the importance of keeping stories alive within the family? If those stories cease to be told, does the family lose a lot in its life?
1: Well, of course, I think if uh, stories, they're not going to be told, then surely we're we're losing, uh, we're forgetting. And they are important, you know. We have to remember them. Even if they are reinvented, even if they are reimagined, it doesn't matter. It's like a conversation which has to keep going. And a conversation doesn't mean that what you say is going to come across to me in exactly whatever way you meant it. You know, there is, again, that ephemerality of conversations, of memory, of everything. So I think let's completely uh, dispose of this notion of something being very exact and authentic, which has to be conveyed but let's just feel what we just believe is that everything must be conveyed every feeling must be conveyed to me conveyed then to the next you know but this conversation must go on so of course you know i think it's very important that the stories are told and stories are told again and again and if you come to the specifics then of course an indian family is a huge uh, value and the book makes uh, that point i think uh, every now and then that it may look physically that the family is finished but in fact it is not you know the value of the family continues and even if you know the family is distributed over the entire uh, you know globe one in australia and one somewhere else and one somewhere else the family actually continues to be uh, the joint family continues to be a unit still in india and uh, the storytellers were often why were they women? Because women had that time. But I think they were also the grandfathers of the family. You know? So it was basically people who had the time, who were not now going out into the world to make ends meet or do whatever is, you know, sort of important worldly business. And those would be women or the older people. And they were the ones who carried forward the stories. And I think it's absolutely essential anywhere for stories to continue as conversation that continues down the ages.
0: I hadn't actually thought of this question, but I'm going to ask this because it just occurred to me. Telling stories or the act of stories being passed on from one generation to the next, in this context lies an assumption that people want to hear those stories. Because often when there's a break in a family, which leads to terrible trauma, suspicion, mistrust, then the next generation may not want to listen to those stories. What happens to those stories then?
1: The silence tells the stories. The omission tells the stories. They may not want to listen to them, but they are somewhere, I mean, talk of uh, Nazi Germany, talk of partition horrors, and uh, those stories people didn't talk about and I know that even in in India, I'm talking about India, partition history in recent times was once again turned to and people turned to researchers, turned to people who had first hand experience and some of them were almost talking for the first time after so many years. You know? And think also of what all they may not have told even then. They they were crying and telling their stories, but they must also have been hiding those stories. But I think stories are also told by the silences, by the omissions. So I think these stories continue. And even if we don't want to hear those stories or don't want to tell those stories because of trauma, because of the trauma we don't want to face, I think I would say it's impossible to forget them. And uh, the very fact that they're making us choose Silence over speaking is itself continuing the story. So I think uh, people will deal with it in all sorts of ways and all kinds of warped results will uh, happen and people will uh, continue suffering those traumas in different ways. But uh, it is necessary for people to come to terms with facing it squarely, however painful it is. And I think some people will continue to try doing that. I think that is how the struggle to keep telling those stories or keep listening to those stories. We listen to the silences. As researchers, you would know, you know, that if you go and interview people about sensitive things, then you are listening to what they're not telling you as well. Or or reading. I mean, in reading also, I mean, somebody writes a, especially a memoir, then you also read what they've not written. So I think that is also a way for the stories to be told.
0: I'd like to talk about Rosie's death. That is a real catalyst moment in the narrative. Was there ever any point that you considered wanting her to come along on the journey to Pakistan? Or did you feel like that was necessary for the plot of the story? Does Rosie's death represent a chapter closed in Ma's life? Rosie really represents a defiance of borders. So Rosie's death feels like this illuminating moment for Ma. This is in contrast to how Ma initially responds to her husband's death. She responds to these two momentous deaths in very different ways. What's the main message about death in this book? And is it one of those borders people have to confront? Do people who are left mourning have to grapple with that border when someone has died to ensure that they can do something impactful after a person's death?
1: I don't think death is ever a closure. I don't think death, I mean, just as nothing here in this book, nothing is really a closed border, you know, which cannot be crossed over. The death has to be, you know, put in that same category of, you know, experience and thought and feeling. So I do not think death uh, represents a closure or an end ever. But uh, I think sometimes in a creative endeavor, in artistic endeavors, death actually Makes the person come alive in a way, just continuing a person in ordinary life would not do. Death consecrates a person. Death uh, brings together so much more intensely and sharply what that person stood for. So I think Rosie's death could possibly be seen as something extremely important. I mean, I I know I've repeated this several times, but I, I did not plan it so. I did not plan that I have to do this in the book. I did not plan that I have to let me employ this strategy to make Rosie so much more important, etc. But death, in fact, you know, uh, draws our attention so much more. It focuses it so much more on Rosie and everything she made for herself in life and everything she could not make for herself in life because of the world around All of it, you know, comes together and everything that Rosie stands for, you know, whether it is to indict us for not having noticed her, whether it is to show this person who asserted herself and managed very, very admirably to make a place for herself, whatever the different registers at which we want to look at her story. The point of the matter is that her dying and then the way she died, the fact that it was seen that such a person may not have the right to, you know, want a house in a respectable place, that story itself, then the way it was thought that this is something they could just get away with, because who cares for Rosie? And I think, for me, that chapter just happened like that, but that one-line chapter, Rosie died. Not even one line, just a two-word chapter, that Rosie died. For me, it's not a small thing. It's like a whole ocean surges up behind those two words and completely, you know, know, suffuses me and sort of drowns me under, you know, rosy time. What all it means, it's not just anybody's death. Whose death is it? What all does it show about us, about her, about everything? So I think death can be a very, very, very powerful um, I don't want to call it a strategy in uh, art and literature that's how i would put it Yeah. if i may i mean it's a, it's just another thought that please i also work in theater uh, sometimes i mean i write scripts with a theater group and it's sort of more collaboration so i don't call myself a, i don't have the confidence to call myself a full-fledged theater person but anyway in collaboration i do work with them and i enjoy that very much I'm thinking of the way dialogues in theatre work. If you just uh, you know complete the dialogue in a very complete way, that this is where it begins and this is where it ends, and you say it all you know, quite lyrically and neatly, it never has the same impact as if you did a sudden break and it's very clear what might have followed, but that's unsaid. And suddenly, you know, it stands. And I'm just thinking that death, Rosie's death, actually works like that. If you just made her live on, you know, in a kind of natural, complete sentence, then I think she just goes into the natural ordinariness around and gets less noticed. She just, um, you know, disappears into the crowd. But if there is this kind of moment, Rosie died then suddenly she stands apart, her life stands apart, and shows all those things in better relief than otherwise.
0: It also makes me think about how when people talk to each other, they are very often talking at cross-purposes, which is the reason why I think writing dialogue in a novel is very difficult because people have tendency to write complete sentences, whereas people don't talk like that.
1: Exactly. Well, that's another thing I think uh, sort of all these years I have been grappling with. It's the strength, but it's also one of the biggest weaknesses of literature, that its main ingredient is words. And words is what we conduct our daily life with, you know, use it for exchange, use it for um, explaining ourselves and understanding the other. So words, somehow, there's an expectation that words should say it all, while art is not about saying it all. Art is about you know highlighting things in such a way that you start seeing and listening to other things which are not said also. You know like you said that in life, you know the things which are you know not completed in that complete way. So I think one of the challenges I had gradually you know, set myself was to not say it all and resort to other ways of conveying. A full sense of the experience, not state everything in words. That's not words are meant to do. So there should be these cadences around the word, these silences behind the word. There should be other you know things which we hear as we read those words, which we see as we read those words, which actually give us the picture.
0: So talk about how you write, and talk also about your style of writing, which is so gripping.
1: Well, thank you. How I write? Well, you know, writing is more sort of boring and trite exercise than people <laughs> really, often realize. You know, sometimes you say, oh, a writer, you know, and they think it's something very different and glamorous and so on. But no, it's just a daily grind and um, quite a mundane uh, routine you have to have. So my way of writing, I mean, now by now it's become more an ideal because I've not been getting the kind of time I'm, want and I've had to compromise because of the some very fine activities around the booker but also other responsibilities as was Mm. goes on in life so I think I have to negotiate and find my slices of writing time in between and that's quite a stress I can tell you but for many years I could manage it you know when I was not so well known and uh, I was just pretty much on my own and i could have this routine so i had set myself this office hours i'm a day person so i would uh, by nine or ten i'd be sitting at my desk and till about four or five in the evening i'd be just with myself and with my thoughts and with books and with uh, creative ideas which didn't mean that i was writing all the time but i was just completely in my own writer's world and things would happen out there now i'm mostly longing for that time and not quite able to manage it like that but the other thing that i've not done almost from the start is to set out with an agenda so i think uh, a lot of writers would be like me but there will be a few who actually have uh, a plan and work with that plan so what they want to show where they want to begin and where they want to end and then they fill it in and things happen. So they have that sort of idea. I often, almost always, I can only remember one book where I did have an agenda, which was a book about Hindus and Muslims in uh, India and uh, the kind of things that are happening, the kind of atmosphere it's generating, the kind of suspicion that's increasing between them. So it was something which um, I felt very disturbed about and I thought this is what I want to write about. And I had an agenda and I had certain things that I wanted to bring into it. Then it went its own way as well, but at least I started with that very clear, thematic and big idea. But in everything else, I've really allowed myself to discover as I go along and let the story come into it. So I sometimes when I start, I do not know if I'm going to be writing just a short story or whether I'm actually going to be able to take this forward and where it's going. But what has been uh, wonderful is that Almost always it has at some point, you know, found its voice and it's amazed me also. Oh, so this is what it's about. So I'm also discovering as I go along, for instance, the crows in this um, novel, you know, I had no plan and somebody asked me, so I said, I think I have started uh, caring for the crows much more after the novel. I don't think I did before that, but yes, they're very much part of my environment unfortunately in the big cities it's not other beautiful birds that one sees but crows and pigeons are the two birds we are living with constantly and uh, actually not liking them much so i don't know how it happened that in this book they became uh, such you know darling creatures for me and they started doing wonderful things but you know the the crows that would come to my house found their way into the novel and became uh, characters i could really care for so it's like uh, the creative uh, process is a surprise even for me. You know, it's uh, showing me things I didn't know I, I had in me. And one thing which often comes to mind uh, to my mind is, you know, that there's always a different chemistry created when uh, two elements come together. And uh, if I have to think it, then I would. I would have some boring plot and boring plan in mind. It would be different. But when I put pen to paper, just the coming together of those two things, you know, I think it starts doing things. And as I write on, and I I still write longhand, you know, my first drafts, you know, so it's only when I've got a uh, almost a finished draft that I put it on the computer. So um, for me, it becomes, uh, you know, the, the coming together of this starts, you know, doing strange things. And it, it's really another chemistry. So I remember again with the theater group, you know, they say, no, you have, you have to sort of, uh, uh, how would you do this scene? What do you want to do? So I, I have no idea. You know, let me sit down. Right. And then maybe things will start happening. And always, you know, this pen and paper coming together, create you know some chemical is released and something else begins to happen so that's actually quite um, that's quite fascinating so my creative process is you know a little mysterious even to me but uh, I know that many many writers you know, work like that and don't really know when they sit down where it would go
0: and your style of writing talk about that
1: not a great person to be able to talk about my style of writing myself you know you have to have different kinds of uh, skills to be able to talk about a style of writing but so I think others you know readers and you know critics would be able to talk about it much more Um, however I mean uh, I could say some very general sorts of things you know which, which are that I'm I'm interested in the shadows and the murmurs and the whispers you know rather than in the very explicitly stated and uh, clearly connected slice of life from the reality around. So I'm interested in catching those things which are not so clear. um, You know, I I, I remember I once did think that um, my work is like uh, not the play which is happening on stage, but what's going on, you know behind uh, in the green room or behind the stage, you know. And that is where my stories, those stories unraveling out there. Uh, what's happening on stage is actually it's like a reversal here as well, you know. So it's like the that, what is happening in the back or in the sides, that comes to the front and becomes the main stage for me, as I write, And the main stage and the finished product, which is going to be shown to the public, the performance is you know, hidden from uh, direct uh, sight. So I think that's really become more and more my way of working. And I'm not in a hurry. That's one thing which both uh, some have liked and some, um, you know, it makes them very impatient. And they say, where's the time? And what are you driving at? And when will the point come? And so on. So, okay.
0: And finally, if you may want to talk a little bit about the fascinating way in which you use words, how words spelled differently with a different cadence acquire a different meaning
1: see it's part of that same you know general sort of uh, philosophy I've been upholding that nothing is fixed and rigid, not even words and their meanings so you know even when I'm dealing with language, I know that you know I don't even know what exactly what rigidly and You know, what the fixed meaning of what I'm trying to articulate is. And when once articulated, I don't know how it is being conveyed. So it's actually like dealing always with moving around the meaning you're trying to reach, approximating towards it. And that's what is valuable. It's uh, about never actually being sure or, uh, or feeling that you've got it. This is exactly it. I don't think so, you know, you're always trying, you're always around it, and that's why you go on and on, you you do it this way, you say it that way, you try it that way, and you carry on, you know, and you perhaps, you know, come somewhere towards it or near it, but I don't think you ever actually manage to say it. So I think uh, it's with that sense of awe and respect, or um, you could even say, I won't say fear, but... Uh, Knowing that words are some powerful entities in themselves, you know, um, and one is dealing with something which is not you know, some dead clay that you can manipulate any which way. You, you, you try it this way, it will work that way. So I think it's that which uh, makes me go on with words, you know, which kind of gives me my relationship with words, and I, it's a relationship I really enjoy. And uh, in the same context, I would also like to say that, uh, you know, people often forget that art, art and literature, I mean, sure, they are always also geared towards serious things, but uh, there's also, you know, a primary impulse to play. There's just a very, very simple desire to play, to play with your, uh, whatever material you work in. So play with that and to let it play with you and, you know, to just enjoy in that process, you know that you are also, everything is serious, you know. Even when you make a joke in life, you know, it's a, the joke has resonances which connect to sometimes good things, sometimes bad things, you know. But uh, as I speak uh, about it, I'm thinking of the jokes that men make, I mean about uh, women. They, they think they're saying it very lightly, but you know, it shows a whole, you know, long, horrible history. And they, they just say it very lightly, oh, we meant nothing, you know, and uh, it's just part of conversation. So I think it's happening all the time. But the point of the matter is that we are artists and writers are also playing. They're enjoying right? something which is about enjoyment. It's not about this excruciating agony and this uh, world that they have to set right and you know this pain that they have to express. I mean, those things may come in or sometimes may not. It's your most primary impulse to play. So, you know, pick up things, play, put them together, make something of it. And uh, whether it's um, words coming out of your mouth, you are trying something there, you're trying a tune there, whether it's something you're picking up, uh, objects you're picking up, you're trying to put them together in a certain way. So, it's that play element I respect a lot in writers and in myself and I allow myself to play. And that is why language uh, and I have this relationship where quite uh, fun things happen with the language.
0: What are you writing now?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, for the last year and more now, I have not written anything that I would call my, part of my creative um, writing repertoire. But uh, I have written other things like, you know, lectures that I have to give or other small pieces that I've had to write, but not um, creative pieces. Um, but uh, before the Booker, I was working on a novel, which I more or less done. And I was, you know, thinking I will give it a last look and tinker a little if necessary uh, with it and hand it over to the publisher. But I never got around to that. I was sort of on this Booker coaster ride thereafter. Roller coaster ride. Yeah, that is what is waiting to be attended to. (laughs) Yeah, and I hope I can do that soon. It's a novel.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and thank you for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The production assistance for this episode was provided by the Language Learning Center at the University of Washington, Seattle, the Student Research Assistant, Anagadirisala, the Editor, Alpna Sood and the social media coordinator, Sana Sheikh.